Well, I'm glad you're back tonight. I hope you're all having a great week so far. We are in week six of our study of how to understand the Bible, and I hope it's been beneficial to you and helpful for you, and we're continuing our journey through this. And tonight we come to the, the next genre of Scripture we're looking at, and that's the Proverbs. And if you're looking at your handout, you're going, but it says we're looking at Proverbs, but there's a psalm there. Well, that's there for a reason. No, there's not a proverb on the front of your proverb sheet. There's a psalm there, because as we begin tonight, I want to just remind us, take us back a step to the big picture of why we are taking the time to figure out how to understand the Bible. Like, what is the point of all this? Because this is not just an academic discipline. It's not just something we're doing for the sake of curiosity or just theology, per se. We're doing this because we want to know God. And God has chosen to reveal himself to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. And if we want to know God and be in relationship with God, we must know him as he's revealed himself to us in the pages of Scripture. And so I thought it would be good to start off tonight just looking at Psalm 119 to kind of remind us of the big picture of what we're looking at. So just follow along as I read Psalm 119 here, starting in verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pants because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise. I'll let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. Now, first of all, what genre is that? Poetry. How do we know it's poetry? Think back to last week. It's written that way. Yeah, the translators have been kind to us, and they put spacing around it. There's spacing around it. It's short lines. There's some meter to it, and it's obviously written in such a form that we know is not typical narrative. It is definitely poetry on that. And just three things I want to mention as we're kind of background of what we're doing before we get into Proverbs. So first of all, just remind us, what is our attitude towards the Word of God? And look at verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Friends, as we approach the Scriptures in prayer... What a great prayer to pray that, Lord, your testimony is wonderful to me. And asking God to give us that type of attitude towards his word. Verse 130, notice the longing for how, what the word does to us. The unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. So, again, we don't approach, even talking about the genres of scripture. I know it sounds real academic, but we're not approaching it from an academic standpoint. We're approaching it so we want it to change us. We want to know God as God reveals us. We want it to transform us. And change us. And then don't forget the relational aspects of this. Verse 132 there. This is speaking to the Lord. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. This is about us knowing God and us experiencing intimacy with the Lord. This is a relationship with the Lord. And we study how to understand the Bible. We study, again, the big word is hermeneutics because we want to know God better. Now, just again, big picture of where we're at is we've talked about what do we do and how we approach the Scripture. We've talked about letting the text determine the meaning. And we're trying to find the authorial intent. We're trying to figure out what the authors meant to say to us, not read into it what we want to get out of it. We've talked about depending on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, obviously, is the one who inspired the text. He illuminates the text for us. So we need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the text. We talked about approaching the Scriptures with prayer. We talked about approaching the Scriptures in community and studying them together. We talked about understanding cultural context and trying to understand the culture of the Bible. And then we started talking two weeks ago about genre and understanding genre. If you remember, genre was just something that has a particular form. 
And when you look at the scripture, there's not one genre that covers all the Bible. There's multiple genres in the scripture, different forms, different techniques in writing. They're distinctive. And in so doing that, we have to realize that each genre has its own rules of interpretation. Each genre has principles for communication of how, that's, of how it's designed to be understood on that. And if we want to know God, Psalm 119, or if we want to really experience God and be in relationship with God, we have to know him as he's revealed himself to us. And therefore, we have to understand the language and the forms of the scripture to know what the meaning is of it. And so far, we saw historical narrative. We saw poetry. And that brings us tonight to Proverbs. So turn to page two of your handout here. I've got a little bit more information in here tonight just as we think about Proverbs for you. First of all, what are Proverbs? Now, first of all, Proverbs are not unique to the Bible. You can find Proverbs in every culture in the world, in every language. Proverbs are a common form of speech that's found all across the world. Proverbs are part of a broader genre known as wisdom literature. And that's kind of the big picture thing. And what is wisdom literature? It's where sayings and reflections of the wise are recorded. It's where people are pondering or musing about the meaning of life and the difficulties and experiences of this life. All that falls under wisdom literature. And again, that is in every culture of the world. It was especially common in ancient Near East, i.e. the times of the Bible. Wisdom literature was very common in that culture as a way to communicate. And there in that particular culture, wisdom literature often had to do with successful living. It had to do with pondering the perplexities of the human experience and the human existence on that. But when we get to that, though, we realize that Proverbs in the Bible are unique. Because it's not just talking about wisdom in general. We are looking at wisdom as the Bible defines wisdom. And that is wisdom from God. Because we know that God is the source of all wisdom. So as we're looking at the genre of wisdom literature in the Bible, it's different than just looking at Confucius' writings or something. Because we know that God is wise as the source of all wisdom. So we are looking to understand who God is and the wisdom that he imparts. We also are looking at what it means to be wise as his people. Because being wise has absolutely nothing to do with intellect. It's all about following God and making godly choices. So hence what we were just looking at in Psalm 119, while we pray those type texts, because we need God to transform us. We need to walk in wisdom that comes only from God. Now, as we come to wisdom literature, the last kind of bullet point in that first paragraph there, it can occur in three different forms in the scripture. It can be monologues, it can be dialogue, and it can be in Proverbs. All this is still part of wisdom literature. Now, monologues, if you think about that, you can think about like Ecclesiastes. That's going to be a monologue that fits into wisdom literature. And really, even Proverbs 1 through 9 is really a monologue of the idea of wisdom speaking to us and all this. Proverbs 1 through 9 would fit into the monologue. Dialogue. Well, this would be Job. Job fits into to wisdom literature. And it's a dialogue between Job and his friends, between Job and the Lord. That's a dialogue form of wisdom literature, of looking at what is wisdom and dealing with the perplexities of our human experience. And then what we typically think of as Proverbs, which we'll define in a minute, that would be more of Proverbs 10 through 31. Obviously, the whole book is that. But particularly the latter part of Proverbs, it's going to be what you'd think of in terms of these kind of short, pithy statements. So then what are Proverbs? I've given you several definitions here. But the first one is Proverbs are short, pithy sayings that express wise, general truths concerning life. Short, pithy sayings that express wise, general truths concerning life. Perhaps the definition I best came from a professor I had many years ago, Robert Stein. He said this, as generalizations learned from careful observation and a wise analysis of life. Basically, what are Proverbs? They're wise advice in memorable form, in short statements, so that we can remember them in ways that will be easy to keep in our mind. If you want other words for it, sometimes we call Proverbs maxims. Sometimes they're called axioms. But they're all the same ideas. These short, little pithy statements that express general truth about life to help us be wise. I mean, every single culture has them. 
I think about other cultures in the world. I've enjoyed Chinese culture for many years from my travels there and friends from China. So if you think about Chinese culture, the person who you typically go to for Proverbs would be Confucius's writings because he would say things like, everything has beauty, but not everyone sees it. Or Confucius also said, he who knows all the answers has not been asked all the questions. Or this one I really like, before you embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves. <laughs> you know, these, are, these are short, pithy statements that we can remember. We can get that image of, well, if I'm going to embark on revenge, I better have two graves ready. We get the meaning of it, and it's memorable, it's short, it's pithy. Every culture does that. Our culture has lots and lots of Proverbs. If you think about them, things like, look before you leap. That's a proverb. The pen is mightier than the sword. Actions speak louder than words. Give someone an inch, he'll take a mile. You know, these are all like different proverbs. When it rains, it pours. A watch pot never boils. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. All different um, proverbs in our culture. Beggars can't be choosers. Better late than never. Better safe than sorry. I love this one. Curiosity killed the cat. Don't bite off more than you can chew. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. You ever use that one? That, that's, a, that's a proverb here. Familiarity breeds contempt. It takes two to tango. No pain, no gain. Old habits die hard. Practice makes perfect. You can't have your cake and eat it too. I mean, our culture is full of proverbs, these short, pithy statements that we remember because they're images for us that help us understand a general truth about life. Now, the last thing under what are proverbs there, this is important, they are general truths, not fail-proof promises. Again, this is important for every culture where you have proverbs, including in the scriptures. Proverbs are general principles of life. They are not fail-proof promises promises. We knew that in our own culture. You know, you use the, the, the proverb, familiarity breeds contempt. Well, you've seen examples of that, and that can happen a lot of ways, but I hope that there's examples of relationships in your life where you're really familiar with someone doesn't breed contempt. Hopefully with the spouse you're sitting next to, that's, that's not been true. We know that that, true, that, truth, that that truth, that proverb, has lots of application in our culture. Familiarity can breed contempt, but it's not a universal rule that has to always happen on there. Um, how about the one that we said earlier that I mentioned of the pen is mightier than the sword? We can think of many ways how ideologies in our university campuses have shaped things more than military might, but that's not universally true. There's times that we can think of where a military battle was a lot more effective than a poem that was written to influence the younger generation. You know, it's a truth that perhaps is there in a lot of times, but it's not always. How about does curiosity always kill the cat? Well, we get people, and you see people getting trouble. You hear, you hear young people going out, I wonder what happens if I take my gasoline and this and put this together and light a match in the woods and see what happens. You know, you might be like, oh, curiosity kills the cat. When someone tells you that, you don't go, well, I know an exception to that, so that's not true. You're speaking a lie. You, know, you don't correct people when they use a proverb because you understand the genre. You understand they're speaking of a general maxim of how life typically works, but it's not always universally true. How about this one? It takes two to tango. Well, we know in a lot of times when there's marital conflict or conflict between friends or roommates or whatever else, even parent-child conflict, a lot of times there's sin issues of both that, ha- that play into that. So it does take two to tango in most situations. But trust me, as a pastor who's done counseling before, there have been situations where there's one person who's best I can tell is really walking in holiness and trying to do what is right, and the other person just won't have anything to do with it. And so there are, so though normally it takes two to tango, there are exceptions where it's really one person's sin that's destroying the relationship. So when someone says that, we don't be like, no, you can't say it takes two to tango. There's, I know an exception to that. We understand it's a, it's a proverb. It's speaking of a generality of life. And again, that is true in every culture. The fact that there are exceptions does not make the general principle false. It's one of the important things. These are general principles of life. And just because there are exceptions to that does not make it false. That's how proverbs are to be understood. And to understand all cultures 
that way. And that goes for Proverbs in the Bible. So that leads to our next section there on your second page, Proverbs in the Bible. Proverbs in the Bible are found throughout the whole Bible, not just in the book of Proverbs. They're interspersed throughout a lot of other things as well. So I give you just three examples, one from the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 11. I love this one. And the king of Israel answered him, Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself, as he who takes it off. You get the imagery here? You may be one thing about boasting going into battle. I am going to conquer the enemies. Don't boast when you're putting on your armor. You don't boast when you take off your armor. It means you survive the battle. It's a proverb that the king was telling to his soldiers. Don't get too confident up front. Wait until after you've been victorious. So it's a proverb that's interspersed in that historical narrative. Jesus used proverbs, and there's, there's a number he used, but too familiar to you, perhaps Matthew 6, 20, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's a proverb that Jesus is teaching because it's, it's short. It's pithy. It's a general principle of life that will make us wise as we understand that. How about Matthew seven twelve? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. The golden rule. That is a proverb also that Jesus uses to make it memorable to help us understand this truth about how we're supposed to live out our lives. So again, I can't emphasize this enough. These last three points there on page two. Like other proverbs here in the Bible, they are general principles that point to truth. They are not laws. And if you take anything away tonight, it's this. Proverbs are not promises. But yet in a little bit of attention here, they are still divine revelation. The fact that they are principles with exceptions does not make them not true. They are the words of God. 2 Timothy 3 that we talked about almost every week. All scripture, that includes the Proverbs, is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. The scriptures make us wise to salvation. That includes the Proverbs as well. They are still God's words to us. But again, we have to understand the genre of how they are being used to understand what the meaning is. So turn to page 3 and let's look at several principles of how do we understand the Proverbs. How do we understand the Proverbs. And there's two huge, huge principles on this page we'll talk about, and then there's several other more specific ones. But here's the first one here, and it is this. Understand that as general principles, there can be exceptions. And I know this can be hard for us because it's not how we typically have heard the Proverbs taught. But every evangelical scholar I read on understanding Proverbs agree on this. Proverbs in every culture understood as general principles with exceptions, and that applies to the Bible as well. So let's think about a few examples of what this can look like for us. Proverbs 1, 33. God says, whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Okay? Well, that's a general principle for life for us that typically, I mean, you know this, your friends who reject the Lord, your friends who abandon all biblical teaching, their lives often end up in disastrous places. Because they, God's laws are there to protect us, you know, to show us how to live. And when people abandon that, they often end up in disastrous places. But do you know people who listen to the Lord, who love the Lord, and yet disaster has fallen on them? It's not because of their sin. And because that is not the case for them, you know, if you, if you take this as a promise, if Proverbs 133 is a promise that has to be true, the fact that our brother Carmen has cancer, that's disaster for him, it must be then because he doesn't listen to God. Now, we don't want to go there with that, but if you make the Proverbs into promises that are always true, that is the natural conclusion of your flow of thought and your argumentation. The most don't want to think that way. That's kind of where those things would end up. Trials come. James 1 promises us that. As believers, it doesn't say if you face trials. It says when you face trials of many kinds. Disasters come on believers and unbelievers alike. Rain falls on the just and the unjust in this world in which we find ourselves in. And so typically... The average way the life works, if we're listening to the Lord, our life's going to be a lot easier and less disastrous than if we don't. 
That is always going to be that's going to be true typically. But we can all name exceptions to where that has not happened quite that way. Again, I'm not trying to burst our bubble on Proverbs, but I don't want the Bible to make the Bible say less than it says. But we don't want to make the Bible say more than it says either. There's another example here. Proverbs chapter three, verses nine and ten. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Again, general principle here that if we seek to use our money with biblical stewardship, if we try to honor the Lord and we give generously of our finances to others and to the, into the kingdom, if we give God the first fruits, the best of what we have, well, then typically God blesses that. I mean, we, you can tell story after story of people who, when they begin to give generously to the Lord, how they really found out they could do more with less because God blessed them in that. This is a general principle of how God typically works. But again, if you've made this into a universal rule that's always applicable, that means anyone whose barns are not filled with plenty and whose vats are not bursting with wine, it's because they don't honor God. And we all know people who love God deeply, who have sought to do their very best to honor God with their finances, and they end up in some type of financial disaster. Not because of sinful choices, but just because of life. Friends, we live in a cursed and fallen world, and people get laid off, and investments collapse, and things happen. That's not God punishing them because of their lack of faith or because they didn't honor the Lord. So we can think of examples of that. Friends, over the years, here in Montgomery and back in Auburn, and even before that, I knew widows who were struggling financially, deeply struggling financially, but they were some people who honored the Lord and gave generously more than a lot of other wealthy people I knew. This is a general principle, but it's not one we want to press into making a promise that has to always be there. But generally, what we do is if we'll honor God and use our finances the way he's designed, we will see greater success in that. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. Let's look at it the same way. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and won't, like an armed man. Well, what's the general principle here? Hard work. We know typically the way life normally works in God's economy, that people who work hard, who are not lazy, are not going to end up poor. But again, there's exceptions to that. We know people who have worked hard, but because of life circumstances, the economy collapses, their business goes under whatever, it wasn't because of their laziness. There's exceptions to that. Likewise, someone who wins a lottery didn't necessarily win the lottery because they were a hard worker. There's lazy people who've won the lottery. That's after they win their $10 million, five years later, they're bankrupt again. But just because you have financial wealth doesn't mean you're a hard worker. Again, this is general principles of life. The hard work typically pays off with greater resources. Again, it's a general principle, and there are exceptions. Likewise, in the very next one, it's very similar to this, Proverbs 10.4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Again, the same thing here. I mean, you could probably think of... You know, if you think of, like, you know, teenagers in the community who've inherited money from their family, you have very wealthy kids here who are as lazy as can be. You know, there's exceptions to this. And, in fact, there are exceptions to this in Scripture. You look at Psalm 73. It's one of my favorite psalms. Asaph, who was the worship leader for King David, if you want to think of it that way. Asaph is wrestling with, first verse, why do the wicked prosper? Why are the wicked fat and sleek and they seem like they have no pains? And so, like, the first about 10 or 12 verses of Psalm 73 is Asaph struggling with why the wicked are doing so well in the world. And it's because typically these Proverbs are true. There are exceptions to that. And Asaph's answer is not to correct the Proverbs. It's rather to focus his mind on the Lord and he comes to understanding in that. With that said, this next kind of bold point in the middle of your page is really important. There's a very serious danger if we treat the Proverbs... As promises. If the proverb is a promise, 
and the person is not experiencing the blessing indicated, then he or she must have failed to meet the condition required in the proverb, such as being lazy, not having faith, not raising children correctly. So, friends, it's dangerous if we want to say that all the proverbs have to be promises, and they're all one genre, so you can't kind of pick, I want this to be a promise, this or not to be a promise. You know, that if these are general, if these are, but if we see all the proverbs as promises, when someone does not have the blessing of financial wealth or whatever else it may be, then ultimately it falls back on them. If you think about Job's friends, and I use friends in quotations there, this is the very error that Job's friends made. They made Proverbs into promises. And so they're quoting here, you know, different things. I don't know which one, where they quoted because it wasn't biblical Proverbs they're quoting here. But look at Job chapter 4, verse 7 through 9. This is one of Job's friends. This one actually here is Eliphaz. And he says to Job in Job 4, Remember, and he's going to quote a proverb to Job, Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. What is Job's friend saying? Look, there's a proverb. Who, no one innocent ever perishes. Well, we typically know that innocent people don't perish at the rate that the guilty do, right? You know, that people who are living in rebellious sin are going to have greater consequences typically. So that's a proverb. That's the way things typically work. But he makes it into a promise. Therefore, he says basically to Job, the innocent don't perish. The upright are never cut off. Therefore, because you are being cut off, because you are perishing here, it's your sin, friend. And he takes and he takes a, 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 pro, a, a proverb, makes it a promise, and then condemns his friend over that. Likewise, Job's again friend. I use it loosely. Bildad in Job eight does the same thing. He says, "Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against Him, He has delivered them into the hands of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then He will rouse Himself." For you and restore your rightful habitation. Talking about when the when the afflictions came on Job's children, they're saying basically, Job, your children are suffering because of their sin and because of yours. Friends, you know the story of Job. Job did not suffer because of his sin. This was in the mysteries of the sovereign plan of God that Job suffered, and it had nothing to do with sin. He wasn't being punished. For what he did, but if you make Proverbs like Job's friends did into promises, therefore his suffering was because of his own sin. And I believe, you know, there's lots of reasons I believe God gave us the book of Job. I know this can be a confusing verse or book for us. I think one of the gifts of Job to us is it helps us understand how to interpret Proverbs. So that we do not do with the Proverbs what Bildad and Eliphaz and some of the others did with their cultural Proverbs to Job. But with that said, let me kind of give a little caveat here. Number two... Proverbs that deal with the nature of God are always true in every circumstance. So just when I tell you, right, this gets confused, just when I tell you that Proverbs are general principles that have exceptions, I'll come back and tell you, but there are some that have no exceptions. And that defining difference here is the ones that deal with the nature of God. Because most of the Proverbs deal with our life and our behavior, a wealthy person, a lazy person, and all these things that deal with us and how life works for us. But there are some Proverbs that deal upward you know, vertically with God. Again, most, if you think of it, most Proverbs are horizontal, people relationships. Some of the Proverbs are about God and his character, and those are the ones that cannot, that, that are universally true. Why? Because Numbers twenty three nineteen, God is not a man that he should lie, and he is not a man that he should change his mind. And friends, again, we talked about it before, but I hope you understand the absolute massive significance of the fact that God does not change. Like I said before, if God changes, it's a terrifying world to live in. If you get up tomorrow morning and you don't know if God's in a good mood or a bad mood, that's a scary place. If you get up tomorrow morning and not sure if God feels like keeping his promise that day or not, that is a scary place. 
And so we're going to talk more about this in our next Wednesday night study. In a few months, we get into the attributes of God. We're talking about the big word here is immutability. God is unchangeable in his nature. And friends, that should be a, a point of our praise and thanksgiving to God. You say that, God, you don't change. That what he shows us here is true. Friends. So like, for example, here's a proverb that will always be true, no exceptions. Proverbs 11.1, 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Why? God is truth. God loves truth. That is always true because God does not change. When you see a proverb that tells you about the character of God, it's not like, well, there might be an exception. I think there's time that God likes dishonesty. No, you know, God delights in truth because that is his nature. Likewise, Proverbs 11:20. those of crooked heart are an abomination of the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. It shows us the nature of God. It's less about what we're doing, more about God. That God delights in holiness because it reflects his nature. Therefore, God delights in that, and that would always be true. So again, normally, most of the Proverbs that are horizontal in nature are general principles that are exceptions. But the ones that are vertical in nature about God are always true in every circumstance. So those are our two huge principles, friends. If we get those two foundational, it'll save us lots and lots of grief in the way Proverbs sometimes get missed. Apply, But there's some other principles to look at I think will help you just for briefly. I think will help you to look at the book of Proverbs. Number three here, like poetry, look for figurative language. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we talked about figurative language last week when we were looking at poetry. But the same goes here in, in Proverbs. When you look at figurative language, friends, remember figurative language is not interpreted literally. We understand it's an image that's teaching us a truth here. Look at Proverbs 15:19. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns. But the path of the upright is a level highway. So imagery doesn't mean that the slugger is going to have to walk through thorns every day and end up and see someone, oh, you're a slugger. Look at all the scratches on your leg. You know, this is an image for us. It's not a literal thing that happens. The the people who are not lazy don't literally have straight roads and the sluggers walk through thorns. It's an imagery for us to help us understand the dangers of being lazy. Likewise, Proverbs 21, 22, a wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. So we want wisdom in our church leaders, right? So we don't make the pastors, elders, and deacons go climb a city wall first to show us that they're wise people. Why? Because it's figurative language. Thankfully, when y'all were doing the pastor process, you didn't say, okay, we've got to see if you're a wise pastor. Go climb a wall for us and conquer the city and then come back if you can do that and you can be our pastor. Why? Because we understand this figurative language here for us about wisdom and about perseverance and about the character of someone who is wise. And we're going to spend a whole evening on figurative language in the Bible in a few weeks. So just if you have questions, I just kind of make a mental note of that. We are coming back to that soon in a few weeks here. Number four, view descriptions of justice in light of eternity. Because when we look at things in Proverbs, there's things that make it sound like the, 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 the people who are evil will be punished right away. You have to view that in terms of eternity, in the coming day of the Lord, when all the wrongs will be made right. Friends, we have a just judge who will not let any sin go unpunished. And though it may look like the world is spinning out of control to us, there is a God who will make all wrongs right one day. It's just not necessarily immediate. I think in our timetable, we want to see justice fall right now, don't we? But that's not in God's timetable. Look at two of these Proverbs right here. Proverbs 15:25. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. Well, this, is ha- this will happen one day. The widows who are humble will one day be exalted if they're in Christ, right? And the people who are proud will one day be brought Low. God is a just God, and he will one day punish all sin, and so justice will happen. It may not happen right now. So when you read this and go, my goodness, this proverb's not true. I know lots of proud people. Why hasn't the Lord torn them down? 
Friends, their day is coming. God perhaps has given them time to repent, so pray for them now. This is a future of what will happen one day. Likewise, Proverbs 22:16. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. How many casino operators today are still going strong? If this was immediate justice, then the guys who own these casinos and prey off the poor, they should be struck down right now. They're not yet, but trust me, they will give an account before a holy judge one day, and, they, and those people who seem like they're so powerful right now, knees will tremble when they stand before the Lord and before the judge and give an account of their life. This is about future justice that is coming. So don't let these things give you trouble now. Why well, haven't these happened yet? They, they are happening. Let that lead us to pray for those who the Proverbs warn about. Let us plead with them. Let us share Christ with them while there's still time. Number five, some Proverbs must be applied circumstantially. I know that sounds really confusing, but bear with me for a minute. Some Proverbs have to be applied to our lives circumstantially. Like they may be applied in different ways in different times. There's a guy named Temporal Law who had a great quote. He said, the wise not only know the proverb, but also can read the circumstance and the people with whom they dialogue. So it's not enough just to know the proverb here. How do we apply it? And it may apply differently in different places. The one that's such a contrast when we have this and shows us is Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Because it almost sounds like a contrast to this verse. Look at this. Verse 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be liking yourself. Okay, we got that. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Wait. I'm confused. Which one is it? You just told me in verse 4 not to answer a fool according to his folly. Now you just told me, commanded me to answer a fool according to his folly. What in the world do I do with this? It's circumstantial. If a fool is non-teachable, if someone is making foolish choices and non-teachable, we apply verse 4 in that circumstance. We do not answer them according to their folly, lest we get drug in and become a fool ourselves. How many times have you been trying to dialogue with someone who is a fool? And we don't like that word in our culture, but biblically it's a term that Scripture uses, so we need to employ the terms of Scripture. But someone who's foolish in their thought process, and you're trying to have a biblical dialogue with them, and they are foolish. According to verse 4, to leave them in their way before you get drug into that. But what about someone who's made foolish decisions, but they're teachable? Then you apply verse 5 here. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. That means you answer them and show them their folly to, make them, to help them see the futility of their ways so that they can be brought back to a place of wise thinking. And so this is not a contradiction between verse 4 and 5. It is apply it circumstantially. And this is, again, back to Temper Lawman's quote. The wise not only know the proverb, they also read the circumstances in the people with whom they're dialoguing. Because that's why as we're talking to people... You guys are talking to people in the hall, and they're like, hey, man, I've had a hard week this week. You know, that's why you go, I was going to start praying, Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, give me discernment. That's like one of my prayers, when I'm, even on Sunday mornings when we get together and pray at 8 a.m. It's like, Lord, give us discernment as we walk through the halls today to see people the way you see people, to understand what's going on in their lives so that we can speak wise truth into their lives. So some of the Proverbs are circumstantial. We will apply them differently in different ways. But not just to others. Number six brings it back home to us. Proverbs are to be applied to our daily lives. They're given for our instruction to help us live wise lives for the Lord. They call us to faith and obedience. And again, I can give you a lot of narrative-type talking on that, but again, there's a proverb that's short and pithy and memorable to help us get this truth. And look on your sheet, Proverbs 27, sorry, Proverbs 26, verse 7. Like a lame man's legs, which hang useless, is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. If all we do, friends, is know the truth of the Proverbs and we do not seek to apply them to our lives, it's like being lame and having a limp leg hanging there. That's the imagery for us. It's not enough for us just to read the book of Proverbs. Like I know it's like really popular Bible reading plans to read a proverb every day of the month and do that over and over. That's great. It's the Word of God. But if we're not seeking to apply those, 
it's like we have a limp leg just hanging there useless, just dead weight on us if we're not seeking to intentionally apply the Proverbs to our lives. It does no good. Proverbs call us to faith and to obedience. Well, that leads us to one. I want to give us one application of a proverb here before we break up into our group time. And um, this is one that I fear is probably the most misapplied proverb in all of Scripture. And I don't, I'm not trying to step on toes if you use it this way. I've used it wrongly in the past as well. A lot of us have as well. It's Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Haven't we all seen that painted on nursery walls? Hung in kids' rooms? Claimed as promises? Y'all, I can't tell you how many adults I've talked to over the years whose kids have zero fruit, zero evidence of any sign of repenting and believing in the Lord headed on a path towards hell, and the parent goes, but I know they'll be in heaven one day because I trained them up right. And the Bible promises me that my kid's going to heaven one day because I trained him up right. He's not going to depart from it in the end. Friends, that is a misapplication because that is, again, taking a proverb, that's a general statement about life, and applying it as a promise. We have to go back to some of our questions. Is this a proverb about the way life generally works or a proverb about the nature of God? One about this is a horizontal one, if you will, about how the way normally works. So therefore, it is not a promise like the ones about the nature of God. So this is a general principle. Again, these are general principles given to instruct us. So what is the meaning of this? Parents, strive to train your children in the ways of the Lord. Parents, work hard to be disciplined to train your children the way they should go. And typically, in this life, they won't depart from it. But again, that's not the, tr- the case all the time. Guys, we all know people who were model godly parents, who kept their children immersed in the Word of God, who taught their kids the Bible in and out, and when those kids became adults, they turned their back on the faith and walked away. If this proverb is a promise, then you need to go pretty hurl some awful insults at that person. Because if this is a promise, then those parents failed awfully. But it's not a promise. It's a general principle of how life normally works. And I know that typically makes us uncomfortable. Think about this, but friends... Nowhere in the Bible are any of us promised believing children. We pray for it. We long for it. We get on our knees and we cry to the Lord for the salvation of our kids. But friends, none of us are promised believing children. How many godly people in the Bible had their kids walk away from the faith? You look even at King David. He was a man after God's own heart. Look what happened to his kids. On and on you have people in the Bible who loved God whose kids rebelled on that. And friends, that's sobering to us, and we cannot just simplistically come back and claim this if our kids are walking in rebellion and if no, no evidence of walking with the Lord, go back and say, well, no, they're okay, because it's no. That leads us to then not pray for their salvation. If our kids have turned their back on the Lord, we need to be on our hands and face before the Lord with the community around us, joining us in praying and pleading for the Lord for our wayward kids, not clinging to a proverb that was not designed to be used that way. The other thing that happens when we use this particular verse as a promise is we throw unnecessary coals of condemnation on people in the church. I was talking not long ago with a person whose adult kids have walked away from the faith. And that person has had people in the church tell them things like, what did you do wrong? And like, correct them. Because obviously if you tramp a child they should go, they won't depart from it. And it leads to the church throwing condemnation of people who need our encouragement at that point, not the weight of unnecessary guilt being thrown upon them. Instead of throwing this weight at them, we understand this is a general principle of life, and therefore we cry with the families whose kids are wayward, and we plead before the Lord for those who are wayward as well. 
just a, a quick other word on that, because I know this is a heavy issue. There's lots, there's lots, lots of people who struggle with this. There's a guy named Jim Newhouser who's a biblical counselor, and he wrote a phenomenal, it was actually more of an interview, and it's, it says, is it your fault if your child is lost? And it's a transcript. It's just a little back and forth between himself, Jim Newhouser, who's a very well-known biblical counselor, and a guy named Keith Lambert, who is a big mobilizer of equipping counselors for churches. And they go back and forth on this. He talks about the danger of applying this particular proverb as a promise. But then he talks about, well, what do you do if your adult children, or even your teenage kids, have walked away from the Lord? How do you treat them? How do you respond to them? How do you show them grace? How do you do it in a redemptive way? And so I've got, a, I've got some copies of this up here because I know some of you are walking that journey right now. Or if you're not walking through it, you've got a friend in your life group or a friend in your Sunday school class who's walking that journey I just encourage you to read that. I've got some copies up here on the front if you'd like it. It's just, I think, a helpful read because it's a very real issue on the hearts of lots of people. And again, a proper understanding of the genre of Scripture will help us know to come alongside those people and not throw condemning words to them. I know that's a lot of heavy stuff right there, but I share that again not to burst our bubble in Proverbs, but to help us see what Proverbs really entail. Don't go to Proverbs looking for promises to claim. Go to Proverbs to look for principles for how we become wise in following the Lord in this life. And friends, if we will do that, it will guard us so that we let the Proverbs mean what they are. We're trying to understand authorial meaning here. But it keeps, it keeps us from going the danger of Joe's friends of making it say things that the authors never intended for it to say. So we're about to break up into some small groups. Here's our discussion questions for it to get you back into hopefully a lighter mood after. I know that was kind of heavy stuff on this. Number one of our discussion, what are Proverbs from our culture that you have heard? I threw out a lot of those at the beginning. You know, like, curiosity killed the cat. You know, we, we threw out lots of those different ones. But what are some other ones that you've heard? And the question is, do we require those Proverbs in our culture to always be true? Or do we understand those to have exceptions as well? Number two, which of the following Proverbs will always be true and which will have exceptions? I'll give you the hint here. The ones that are always true are the ones about the nature of God, the vertical ones. The ones that are horizontal about human life have exceptions. And so work through. I've given you five of those. So there's a few of each. So which ones are always true and which ones are the general principle of life that may have exceptions? I even gave you a hint on one of them. I gave you Proverbs 10.3 and asked you to read 2 Corinthians 11 and compare it. So if you, you'll quickly find the answer because I made that one super easy for you. Number three, to get you talking about your own experience with Proverbs, do you have a favorite biblical proverb? It's okay if you don't, but if you do, share it. And is the one that you, is your favorite, is it one that has to always be true or is it one that's a principle? Number four... Is there a time in your life when a biblical proverb encouraged you, gave you hope, or corrected you? I want us to kind of shift towards the end of back to a more positive focus here of your experience with the Proverbs. Again, the Proverbs, just because they're general principles with exceptions, does not mean they're not useful. Second Timothy 3 again. Biblical Proverbs have corrected us, have encouraged us, have given us hope. They are powerful because they're the Word of God. And so bless the people around you. If there's been a time that a proverb has really just, God's used to discipline you, has used it to really correct you, to used it to encourage you, share it with your group. And then like we did last week, by, at least by 7.20, stop these discussions, even if you're not through it all the way. I think you can get through these tonight by 7.20. And take about at least 10 or 15 minutes and pray for one another. The reality is there are a lot of heavy burdens that a lot of us are all carrying. And the church is to be the place where we're to find that community to help shoulder one another's burdens. And so take some time in group, share prayer, prayer requests, burdens on your heart, and then pray for one another. So the guys who typically have led our discussions for us, I know I see Seth here. I see a few of you guys here. You guys stand up who typically, who typically lead our discussions for us. Okay. 
Okay, I think one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, that should be good tonight with those five groups. So if you guys just kind of scatter and form into groups around these five men right here, guys and girls together with them, um, and then we'll work through these questions together. Thanks for your patience working through Proverbs. Again, I know this is a bit of a stretch for a lot of us, but I hope that it will be helpful for you as you seek to understand the Bible. Okay? Because God, if, if our faith was something that we invented, who of us would have written this this way, Right? And it would have made everything very clear-cut, straightforward. But the fact that there are these ponder, imponderable things for us. You know, I was telling this group over here, you go into Joseph's brother, or Joseph being sold into slavery. His brothers come to him, and they're terrified when they realize it's Joseph because he thinks he can kill him now that he's so high up in Egypt. And he says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. You, you sold me, God sent me. Well, which is it? You know, God's sovereign, God orchestrated it, but God let these simple actions of these people, what they chose to do, be what God had planned to happen. How does that work? There's tension here. That's okay, friends. God is so much bigger than us. Our little tiny, finite minds have a really tough time figuring out how some of these things are, how infinite God works. And so my encouragement to you tonight is if you're struggling with how some of this stuff fits together, that's okay. Let it lead you to awe and wonder of how big God is that we struggle in our finite limitedness here to try to explain these things. So don't let it lead you to exasperation. Let it lead you to worship. With that said, next week we're going to be getting into prophecy. And so just so you know where we're going that. But right now, go ahead and take the next remaining seven or eight minutes and just take some time to pray for one another in your groups before we dismiss. Thanks.